0: Welcome to Seed Phrase, a new podcast project reflecting on the conversation around art and blockchains at the New Institute.
1: Hello and welcome to the Seed Phrase. My name is Georg Dietz. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the New Institute and we're presenting this podcast project on Web3 with me, Simon Danny, the host of Seed Phrase, international acclaimed artist and fellow at the New Institute. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Georg. Yeah, it's an exciting project. So what you're listening to is actually not uh, the first proper episode of Seed Phrase. Um, it's a prequel. It's an introduction, explanation of sorts of why we're doing this. Because I think it might need some explication, some context. Web3 is such a buzzword. Web3 is also quite opaque, one could say. It's either boom or bust. So we saw the meltdown of... Um, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies recently, which is a phenomenon connected with what's called Web3. So the question overall is, simply put, is it good or is it bad? And then also, how does it fit into the context of something like the New Institute, which is about visions for a common future? Um, and uh, why would the thing that's so easily commodified by capitalism in some way, not a thing, but like a, a space, be interesting mm-hmm. as a political or emancipatory space. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the tension that we try to explore in, in this first conversation because it's really interesting for me in some ways how the discourse about Web3 changed in recent uh, months and years from a utopian to a quite I don't know, realistic or dystopian discourse. And um, there's nobody better really to talk to, the, <laughs> to this about than Simon. Um, because Simon, so you, you've been working with technology in, in general, but, but also sort of web3 related technologies, crypto, uh, blockchain, uh, for quite a while. and We know each other from Berlin in that sort of context. I was at one of your first shows, uh, Proof of um, Concept. Proof of work, uh, yeah. Proof of work at the, at the time at the Schenkel Pavilion. Do you want to explain a bit how you got started, so
0: sort of yeah. how your interest got triggered in, in, in this subject? For sure. Thanks for those prompts also and those questions. I think um, narratives about Web3 are many and various, and they, as you say, they differ with time and with context, with who you're talking to. There's a lot of different versions of what Web3 is. And this notion of um, people telling stories or people making I guess making contexts up with stories is something that I've been looking at in my artistic practice for a longer time, even before notions of Web3 were posited by people like Gavin Wood, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, or the guy who wrote the Ethereum Yellow Paper. That was where the term was kind of proposed, one of the contexts which it was uh, put into circulation, also in Berlin. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been looking at yeah, the way that people making technology businesses tell stories about what they're doing as kind of artistic material. And I did that with social media and uh, and kind of web too, like you know, around Facebook and Twitter and these uh, very important platforms as they emerged. Uh, I was really interested in that. And I made lots of installations in museums and galleries in Europe and, and the States and different parts of Asia and Australasia. And... Uh, because I was looking into this context as uh, Bitcoin was emerging, which is the kind of first, I guess, uh, scaled cryptocurrency um – Yeah, I was really interested in stories that were being told around that in the same kind of technology communities and from outside of those communities. Mm So that's where my interest started. And then I noticed after Ethereum's launch in 2014-15 that artists were also starting to use this as a medium. So as an artist making art about these spaces and then watching a kind of new network architecture emerge and artists play around with it. Uh, that was really exciting to me. And so, yeah, I made a kind of a curatorial effort in 2018 to frame some of those activities in what was, I guess, the tail end of the last boom, because it's, uh, as you mentioned, one of the things about Web3 is it's explicitly uh, a financialized layer is a part of it. And there are cycles of kind of accelerated boom and busts as a sort of seemingly a, an integral part of what that medium is. And so it's sometimes it can Project a kind of story of incredible growth, and other times it can breed equally as uh, strong negative feelings when these crashes happen and uh, we 're right now experiencing one of those moments of crash, but yeah, I just found as an artist and maybe maybe to speak to some of those questions about why I thought that it was relevant to bring conversations around web three and art to the new institute and where those missions maybe meet is that I think. That the artists that I noticed working within the context of Web3 were these types of people that were searching for different ways of doing things and also looking for new uh, technical possibilities but also like social possibilities and financial possibilities as as technologies changed and I see that as a part of what the new Institute wants to do is to kind of map possible futures. So, uh, yeah, in 2018, I I made this show, uh, Proof of Work, which is named after the consensus protocol that is um, core to um, Ethereum, blockchain, and, and Bitcoin, and looked at artistic practices like those of... Terra Zero, a group that is trying to uh, propose the idea of a forest that owns itself, based on smart contracts and special kind of legal formations that come off the possibilities of, of blockchains, and and looked at that. And I also looked at um, people making artwork, like Harm van den Dorpel, who was making kind of digital assets that one could own, but then also can change over time. So new ways of thinking about ownership in groups and what a what a digital object is. And those types of things excited me. And uh, yeah, fast forward to the last couple of years, I think um, a lot of people have known about art and blockchains because of the NFT explosion that happened at the beginning of 2021. And with kind of astronomical prices being paid for digital assets on blockchains, I think this sparked a whole new yeah, set of storytelling but also sets of interesting artwork designs and possibilities for network designs. So, yeah, that's, that's me, and this is why I think having these conversations in this context is, is relevant right now. And as we go through these boom and bust cycles, I do think that some version of this web, whatever Web3 is, whatever it becomes, whether that involves blockchains or not, is interesting to think about and plan as they emerge. Yeah.
1: So now we jump, again, sort of right in into the discussion of the present moment, I think what is important to take one step back maybe and to say, okay, there's Web 3, we need to explore where that is, but mm-hmm. sort of also to understand what then consequentially sort of Web 2 would be and <laughs> yeah. then Web 1. So maybe from my perspective, and you can sort of jump in wherever you want. So sort of, I was always interested in the origin of Web 1 in some way, So sort of the... Yeah. 60s moment. Uh, there's this uh, classic book, Fred Turner, uh, sort of from counterculture to cyberculture, which explores the really fascinating, contradictory history of, of the early internet. So, sort of coming from military research, then uh, and the cybernetic counterculture of California, mostly, and the hippie vibe to that. So, sort of exploring that place of freedom and anarchism in some way, or a reconceiving society from that perspective, and how that then. Quickly, or not quickly, over time, and there was the the Stuart Brand context, um, Whole Earth, Catalog, the moment where ecology was in some way also... Um, Burst in a way as a more popular movement. And that's a really interesting and utopian space that's uh, connected to Web 1. And in some ways, I think we'll revisit that also connected to Web 3 yeah. in a very similar way. And I think the fear is that with Web 3, or much faster actually, what is happening with Web 3 is the same thing that happened with Web 1, which was very quickly in the 90s mostly commodified. So it mm-hmm. started to be commodified by actors like well, mainstream by AOL or Netscape yeah. and browsers sort of that mm-hmm. then that, that made it into a more homogenous space.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a history that I really relate to and that I also find fascinating, I think. And it's kind of, let's say, narrative and ideological frameworks kind of come back again and again, I think. And also these tensions that you're pointing out between the commercial web and the commercializing of kind of these... Libertarian, other spaces that emerge around these computing networks through different eras, and yeah, the push-pull between kind of non-commercial activity and commercialized activity. And I think Web One, you could say, or at least the Web One that I that I kind of recognize, started in a way with Tim Berners-Lee's, you know, World Wide Web, which was built on top of this, as you say, military and academic internet that existed in decades before it. But it was the first time that the internet was made available also to commercial. Agents, right? And the commercial web starts with Web One as well, but it also is the same time when many people get access to the web. So I think you always get these moments of commercialization in, I guess, conversation with these moments of alternative buildings and other types of narratives around um, ways of doing things in different um, infrastructures. And I think Web Three is kind of the same, except you know this. Uh, more directly financialized asset layer to the whole thing, and, yeah, and that was in um, in dialogue to Web Web two, right? Yeah, that, so, that's I think important to understand. So the Web one the, that that yeah. that's
1: of the euphoria or just the origin. The power, the energy behind Web three is directly connected to the disappointment with um, web, two. web two. That's right. This yeah, and maybe
0: maybe to like map out that territory just very quickly. So Web one is could be seen as the web of hyperlinks and an email. Maybe those are the two architectures that really kind of scale Web one, and so you have web pages and you link to various different ones and maybe the companies that symbolise that best might be you know America Online, AOL, uh, Netscape, uh, early browser, these types of things. That's maybe Web one. Ending in the two thousand and one crash, and then um, and then Web two is kind of like where platforms and social media and user generated content become like the kind of core web, and and Google is uh, is is kind of a part of that as well. So maybe Facebook and Google are the two companies which often get framed as the kind of cornerstones of Web two. And I think, uh, you know, the great things that Web2 brought was that we could like map our sociality in different ways. The idea of uh, of really living online and connecting to people in lots of different places was finally enabled. I mean, you could send an email, you could be on chat forums in Web1, but in Web2, the kind of scale of that, you know, Facebook was kind of like almost a uh, ubiquitous thing that getting to know and following people's lives in other parts of the world uh, and kind of melting down these these national borders in a really meaningful way through different types of social connections happened, right? But I think where people really got upset around that was, first of all, the distortion of information and the way that that kind of like fed into into a kind of chaos of narrative around politics, but also where the money was going and who was creating the value and who was able to keep the value. So, it's a very well-known... I guess critique of Web two by now this idea that you know Facebook Google and these larger monopolies are able to accumulate and keep all the value that we through our behavior create through our social lives right so um, I think that's where the kind of financial layer of Web three and its promise kind of comes in because the narrative of Web three is like okay well you know we still want to do these kind of socializing layer on the internet we still want to connect with other people but we don't want these big companies to be able to Create and keep all the value. Um, we want other architectures that make it easier for the user to have a stakeholder in the ownership of that value as well. And so, yeah, like NFTs do, they you know it, it allows you to to tie an asset to uh, like a like a digital asset, like a JPEG, to a, an entry on a on a ledger, and that means you can track the the value of that um, object. And you can do that in theory with lots of different things. So instead of one company owning all the value, uh, then kind of every user can own, own a little share of the value. That's the, that's the promise of Web3. Which is already sort guess- the, of
1: the market-driven promise. So, so for, what I find interesting looking back at Web2 or also the time of Web2 and maybe our history with that is in a way the vacuum of really thorough or basic reflection about politics. So what, what is this that we create? So what is this economy that's sort of emerging, sort of all encompassing capitalism, but also what is the potential and the theory of, of what, what this public space is? And it was really, um, I think it comes down to Mark Zuckerberg, sort mm-hmm. of the big philosopher saying, well, I, I connect everybody, that's it yeah that's basically the utopia, yeah, and this is looking back and living having lived through that time mm-hmm. so brain dead and so simplistic and so lacking anything of um yeah. understanding of how society works or or sort of uh, the automatism of connection creating a better play, a better future or or a meaning in any way so so that's a bit somehow um <laughs> yeah, troubling. Looking back,
0: it was a simple story. It was a simple story. It had a lot of uh, resonance at the time. I remember going to like conferences where I do research. Right, I go to technology conferences as well as art meetups, and um, I remember going to conferences in 2011, 2012. You know, the kind of maybe the the top of the bubble of Web 2, maybe or at least the narrative top, where everyone was saying, you know. North Africa's freedom is created by Facebook. You know these types of stories, and uh, yeah, uh, a lot of people were were doubling down on that narrative, uh, believing in it. Um, and then you know, fast forward to 2016, and and the narrative was the opposite. Right?
1: But I think the interesting thing is sort of what happened with Web three, and and what we also try to do here at the institute with somebody like Francesca Bria, and and sort of reflection about data. So sort of just just to understand what data is, is is user generated content in some way but is it really content i mean it's it's value on the one hand you can say that but it could also be like the raw material for democracy so it's information that's in the system so it can be uh, used to make better decisions or it can be used to Mm. um, have a bit of better representation for for citizens so it can be used in many ways that's why i sort of jumped in and said oh you talk about already about value and nfts as somehow i know that you don't mean it as such, or maybe you're actually quite interested mainly in the financialization of that as a story. But I'm just trying to sort of make the point here that this is um, can be used and defined mm-hmm. in any or at least many, many different ways for yeah. political or, or societal purposes. And I think that is for me at least something that I had to relearn in a shameful way. Sort of after, as you say, the 2011, 12, 13 somehow one-way street of history still and the Fukushima, Yama's yeah. in the Fukushima-yamasa sense of end of history, so still that understanding of there's one direction and that's forward, yeah. and then with technology that helps us along, and um, I think this Web3 utopia was also a reckoning, and that's why it's so bitter, of so that the reckoning is somehow so easily already lost in some way, and I think yeah. that's what I like about you, or this project here, that we need to <laughs> sort of dig in understand and actually fight for this utopia once more in some way.
0: I mean, I think maybe one of the first steps to that for me as an artist and as a thinker um, was to try and, I guess, undo this binary of like financial bad you know, non-commercial good or something like that. Because I, I find that totally unrealistic in terms of the world that we live in, right? Like uh, we there are many mechanisms in the world for framing what's valuable and what isn't. So let's take the financialized word value out and let's say instead something more broad, like what's, what's valuable and how is that measured and how is that rewarded in, in the world? And the, the answer is at this juncture, a lot of it is uh, is by finance. And so a lot of the design and decision makings of governments and even individual people is, is made through the lens of monetizable value. So I guess my, you know, when I look at finance in my work, and when I look at I guess, ways of thinking about how finance is structured. I'm actually looking at what people value and how they value it and what kind of rails do we have to build that on, you know. So so I guess w- my personal response was like this world is commercialized. This is the world that we live in. Financialized value is the way that value is expressed and at high levels and, and very low personal levels, this is how people navigate their lives and how, how countries and businesses navigate the world. Then what is the most meaningful thing to do in that space to try and – Yeah, move towards something that is more positive is to address that at the level that it's working and think about different architectures for it. So I think maybe this is something that a lot of people, particularly from within the arts, have questions about. You know, I I did a talk recently also in Germany at an auction house, Griesbach, with a fellow, um, I guess, writer, journalist, thinker of friend of yours, uh, Colia Reithart. And we were speaking also about NFTs and, you know, trying to speak about that to an auction house's um, art-loving audience. And, uh, you know, I was explaining these different ways which you could kind of structure networks and, uh, you know, put things into – uh, into different value packages. And one of the questions I got from the audience was, look, this sounds like it's all about finance. Like, where's the art, you know? And I would say, you know... At the, the auction house of all places. It, it, well, <laughs> I thought it was ironic in that context, yeah. I mean, I said to them, you know, look, uh, you guys love art. You come here to an auction house, but, you know, it's about both value and art. And you signal your belief in, in what's important culturally with the amount of money you're, you know, uh, going to spend on this or that asset. And that doesn't mean you dislike the asset or think it's less important. Quite the contrary, you know? So, I guess for me, this idea of kind of expelling this notion that we can't talk about finance as artists or we shouldn't uh, pay attention to how infrastructure frames culture um, is, 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 I think, the first step to looking at making something that is, you know, designed by people who have these values in mind, right? Like, I I love culture about everything else. This is why I'm an artist. This is why I also teach and run mentoring programs with artists and, you know, go into communities, et cetera, and try and, uh, you know, learn from a lot of different ways of making culture – But I think every time I get into those situations, I recognize uh, how important the infrastructure and the kind of economy that these people are participating in uh, is also about framing what's possible. Mm. So for me, the promise of Web3 is that exactly that addresses directly this financial layer, which is anyway so important in making decisions.
1: Um, It's funny how people then use art to somehow create this other space that's mm -hmm. not like the world. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you're you're doing digital financialized realism in some way with, with the like art, a, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. and and it's interesting how people are shocked to look in the mirror. Actually, yeah, <laughs> it's not us. No, it's not us. Right. But and what I was, what I would like to pick up is two words because I think it's relevant to think about the potential or or the reality of Web three, which we sort of maybe should try to take apart a bit more precisely. So you said architecture and infrastructure. So mm-hmm. so I think these are key words to understand what is the potential or meaning or what is the way the Web3 works. And mm. I don't know how you would say it's decentralization in some way mm. and blockchain as a technology for that. Yeah. Is the decentralization, yeah. the key architectural component. In it's a, way.
0: a key architectural component. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, Web3 starts from, and this begins with Bitcoin, right, is like, okay, you know, we see the way that, You know, large businesses in Web2 and governments and the internet itself are kind of in, you know, in step with each other and can be, you know, in various different political regimes used in different ways. So, uh, that's a result of a centralization of power of some kind. And the original proposition of the web, technically at least, was about decentralizing, right? Um, Web1 also was uh, one of the core narratives was about decentralization. of of, of, Because centralized power is... Dangerous. Well, or that, it's, that's, it's easy to control. That, yeah. and you have a lot of power in one position if yeah. that one position fails. So that's, that, that's the core idea. That's the yeah. core problem, yeah. right? Yeah. If, if, one, if one position becomes corrupt or fails or, or wants to kind of coerce, um, then they can very easily, right? With a decentralized power architecture, then that's harder, right? So the idea is with Bitcoin, let's make a finance that is not, you know, manipulable by central banks in the way that finance is, but it's also then taking that to the next level with Ethereum, let's create a computing platform, which is also, again, um, decentralized. So like controlled and by groups of people and groups of people in consensus around moving towards this or that state of being. Now, there's lots of ways that you can critique that. In fact, some of my guests, Wasim Alcindi, the first speaker, finds interesting ways to critique that, as does Aliswan. But, yeah, there's, I think that key proposition of decentralizing is, as you say, like core to what the value of uh, Web3 can offer. Because it's, it's saying, no, we need to take these centralized points of control away again and make an architecture which you can rely on. And then there's like uh, smaller ways to kind of show that. One of the key conversations, I think, that people who are in music, for example, always point out to me and people who are kind of building followings in Web2 you know, what's if these things kind of go away, right? So let's say you build your economy around your Instagram followers or your Twitter followers and suddenly Twitter is sold or disintermediated. Could be. Could be, <laughs> yeah. right? It's it's imminent. Um, and, and what happens to all that work that you've put into kind of building those followings to working to that infrastructure, right? That's all gone. And that can be changed at the top of that. And the idea with Ethereum and these kind of other decentralized things is that those things can't change in the same way. They're kind of built in and the power is distributed and you can't meet the head of Ethereum. You can't buy Ethereum. It's impossible, you know, like it's not owned by one person, you know. Um, So I think this is one of the key things about decentralization and power. It's saying we're going to build this infrastructure which is there for everybody to use um, and that can't be changed by somebody just because they have lots of money.
1: And I guess it's important also to understand this in the context of what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism on the one side and then surveillance, state surveillance in a Chinese way on the other hand. So there is an economic component of, as you say, owning your own stuff in some way and not mm-hmm. giving it away to a, a platform. Mm-hmm. There's a, a political necessity, maybe, sort of encryption being part of that, mm-hmm. um, how to keep your sort of liberties as, mm-hmm. as a citizen from either extractivist capitalism or, or state surveillance. And then there's also the potential to reconfigure society in a decentralized way. Is that something that's relevant for you or or are you more an observer of the development of digital spaces less than a creator of actual realities?
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, I think these questions around what types of decentralization we really mean when when we talk about decentralization is one of the Core parts of the conversation that, uh, and the interests of uh, Jaya Clara Brecker, one of one of the guests I also have on the conversation series, she's very good at making this distinction between technical decentralization, right, design design of networks which have a decentralized network built into them, which is kind of a military thing in its first, because you can't take out a single point without taking the whole network, uh, or rather, you can if a single point goes down, then the network stays. To uh, more like political decentralization, which is not necessarily the same thing but they're kind of inspired by and they they kind of resonate with each other. And and blockchains kind of start with this technical definition and often drift towards this more political definition and people kind of take that up at various different moments. Like I myself you know, I definitely see myself as an artist who reflects what's going on. And I guess this podcast is in some ways like a vehicle for that, right? Bring people in who are building, who are kind of like dialoguing with different parts of Web3 and art and show what they're doing and highlighting those practices because I think um, they say something about the nature of what's happening in the world right now, also beyond blockchains. So blockchains are kind of an antenna for yeah, I think wishes and thoughts in general. And I think these are some of the most interesting people doing it. And my work has always, I think, tried to take something that's happening and and bring out a sort of essence and create an effect that isn't there, but uh, that reflects something that's going on culturally. If there was a political philosophy of Web3,
1: what do you think that would be? I mean, it's confusing in some way that it's so appealing to, again, as Web1 was, to utopian, anarchist, anti-capitalist, also in a way anti-liberal democracy people, so in a way from the progressive or left side, so Mm -hmm. rethinking what the government structure is, what's the decision-making process, um, embedding different values in markets, non-monetary values in some way, markets of care. uh, So it could be really the potential for a more... empathetic society in some way. You can use technology in any way. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So, it it creates, has some meaning, but it's also open to be used. Yeah, it's Uh, cultural. It's cultural. And on the other hand, it's so strong in uh, libertarian circles, uh, radical individualist circles. uh, Or or in darker spaces of society, sort of drug dealing and sort of the dark web and the cryptocurrencies used used for that purpose. Um, Is there... (laughs) what's the argument here? So if, is it need to take technology actually out of the argument and look at sort of the societal or, or political positions of these groups? Because they're not imminent, they're not created by technology, I guess. But they're in some way, they in some way they are created by technology or enhanced by technology.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think all the, all the kind of different strains that you mentioned from like the, you know, from the utopian redesigner of a a care economy to the scammer that's out to create a pyramid scheme explicitly and rip a bunch of people off to the... You know, to the people thinking about living completely outside of legal structures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All, all of these kind of dreams somehow fit under this umbrella, which I think culturally makes it so interesting and so compelling from an artistic perspective that all of these uh, complicated and maybe, you know, friction-creating meetings of different ideologies and different stories come together in this kind of one technological domain, let's say. And to the question of, uh, you know, is it a technological thing? Is it a cultural thing? Um, I would say that it's, yeah, it's really, it's maybe pointing out again something which I think is a really important thing to remember, or for me at least, is that technologies are created by groups of people. And those groups of people have, of course, kind of mathematical, technical um, abilities, but those domains, those... um, yeah, those um, disciplines are created within cultural spaces and have authors and have cultural histories. And so they have politics and they have values uh, built into them. To the people making them, often those values are in the background. But I think to people coming from the outside of those communities and just using those infrastructures, often those um, political, cultural, ideological things are very obvious and baked in. You know, uh, I think one of the conversations we have with Alice is also reflecting exactly that. You know, Who gets to build technologies? Who gets to claim the space of the technical as separate from the cultural? And why is that, you know, why are we seeing it like that rather than every technical thing being also a cultural expression and a political expression at the same time? Yeah, no, Simon, I think that's actually a good
1: point to end this conversation here because it's better actually to listen, as you say, to the people who look at these phenomena. And from the conversations that we recorded already, which were taking place at the New Institute space, I learned so much, it was really really fascinating and I'm sure that the audience will gain a lot from from your difference um of perspectives that you assemble from people who work in the cultural space, artist space also people from technology and more business backgrounds
0: so um yeah, it's, it's been an exciting uh, small group of conversations. And I want to thank you, Georg, for kind of prompting this, for framing this up, for introducing me to the you know, the work of the new institute and the aims. And I'm really grateful for uh, this space. So thanks for, for hosting and making it possible. So without further ado,
1: enjoy, click, get wherever you have your podcast, as they say <laughs> in the professional space, uh, but for sure on our website. Okay, thank you, Simon, and talk soon.
0: Thanks so much. That was Seed Phrase, a new podcast project reflecting on the conversation around art and blockchains at the new institute. See you next time.